All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of some rare Petro content. We've got the second episode of our Industry Leaders Spotlight series. And today, it's myself, Tavis hosting, Scott McNear moderating, and our guest from Warhorse Petroleum, the big man upstairs, John Herring. Oh, thanks for having me, guys, and it's a pleasure to be here. Um, wild times we live in. Oh, of course, especially <laughs> after yesterday. I mean, as of today, this recording is the 21st, so we're coming right off that Monday madness that we experienced yesterday. So hopefully we get to speak on that in the interview just a little bit. But to get started, can you tell us about yourself? This is Industry Leader Spotlight, after all. How did you get into the industry? When did you start your business? And what does Warhorse Petroleum do? Give us a little history. Yeah, sure. So I'm a Colorado School of Mines grad, um, and I got my undergraduate in 2002. And, uh, you know, at the time, I was trying to find hot industries or places we can go make money, support a family, just like anybody, any other college kid, right? Um, and petroleum was, wasn't very hot in 2002, uh, to be quite honest. Um, but then I got a master's degree and oil and gas started warming up in 04 and 05. And I know a couple of kids that had gone back, got master's in petroleum, and I decided to do that. And um, with a master's in petroleum, uh, I got on with a company here in Denver and was essentially a field engineer uh, learning on my way up, but slowly rose to be more of an executive role in that company and kind of handled everything from land. I was in charge of drilling, completions, production, kind of the whole nine yards. I got to do a little bit of everything. Um, we were just a small independent, uh, you know, and from there we, you know, rode uh, drilling gas wells on the Gulf Coast until about 08 when crashes fell apart or prices crashed and it fell apart. And we moved to uh, McLean County, Oklahoma, started drilling conventional oil wells. And that turned into kind of what you guys know as the scoop today. We sold all that acreage in 2006. It was a package deal to BP at the time. And um, I took that opportunity um, to foray that into my running my own business. And, uh, you know, at the time we started a company called Silver Peak Petroleum that went out to find new carbonates, be the lowest guy in the Tolan Polak of the land, man, drill, show that there's oil in the system, flip it to the Yahoo's that want to drill horizontal wells and make a bunch of money. So that's what we thought made sense. Uh, we were wildcatting on the frontier of carbonates that had been proved with some oil and gas in the system, but nothing was a sure thing. And we found more, uh, more hard times than good times doing that. So I was actually out of the industry for about two years until we just started Warhorse Petroleum. And I work with a group of guys. Uh, one of them is actually an executive at Frontier Airlines who kind of came up with a model like, you know, how do we go build the lowest cost producer of oil and gas in the country? That's the Warhorse charge, being dedicated and diligent in our pursuit of low cost extraction. And so we kind of peeked around and said, you know, what makes sense? How do you produce a barrel of oil as cheap as possible? And we came up with, you know, it's probably stripper production and it probably lives in Kansas or Nebraska. So that's where we started looking for production. And we closed on some of our first production in January of this year. Thank God we didn't spend all the money we raised and still have some bullets left in the belt. So that kind of brings us from 2006 to what Warhorse is about today, which is, you know, buying cheap lifting cost oil. 
All righty. So an extensive history, but being around since graduating in 2003, it sounds like you've experienced your fair share of ups and downs, of course. So those other downs, especially 2008, what are the main differences that you're seeing between today and back then? So actually, you know, a lot of people are saying this is unprecedented. We've never seen this before. We've never seen oil trade negative. And that's probably the only true statement, I think, or ultimately true statement in that, in that list of statements. Usually when price of oil goes down, it's for two reasons. Global demand is off or the price of the dollar is getting too strong and price of oil essentially goes down versus because of exchange rates. So it's the same thing we're facing now. It's just a demand issue. We certainly have never seen the scale of global demand peel off in such a fast amount of time. I think everybody's trying to get their heads wrapped around not only total overall demand may be off 20, 30, 40 million barrels a day, but, you know, really some individualized demands. You've got diesel demand still hanging in there pretty good, but gasoline demand's falling off the cliff. So it's not just a total demand, it, it, it's different demand. So um, usually the price is moving in our industry because of supply and demand. Um, you know, simple stuff we learned in economics, right? This is no different. It's just the pendulum has swung way out of whack that we are seeing some, certainly some temporary things like yesterday of not being able to deliver crude at a positive price because the market's completely flooded to what's gonna be a systemic longer term, you know, issue of working through the supply that we've created over the last three months and continue to create today because we're certainly producing more oil today than we're going to consume today. So stocks are going to go up. We got to work through that. And then that's going to be a longer systemic issue. And then let's say you representing Warhorse Petroleum in all the United States meeting up at G20, OPEC plus, whatever, <laughs> all the big boys, right? What would your attack be? What would your solution be to try and get everyone to agree? Would it be more production cuts? How would we get this price back up? Uh, so production cuts are going to come. Um, certainly it's going to happen because of the free market here in the U.S. I mean, anybody with a stripper well that doesn't get hurt shutting their wells in right now certainly isn't selling oil. There's no reason to. You know, who wants to take five, six, seven, eight, ten bucks a barrel? It just doesn't make sense. And you know, for that matter, people can't do it at that price. I don't know how many wells you could actually find in the U.S. that earn a $10 a barrel lifting cost. Not a lot. Um, maybe the top 5% of all production. So, uh, you know, this will naturally work itself out in the sense that, you know, these companies, it's going to be ugly, but it will work itself out. The people are going to shut in and, not sell, and sell oil. You know, your biggest questions are the guys that just fracked wells in the last six months, two months ago. It's a lot tougher to shut in one of them, that shut in a flowing well and come back to it six months later. Um, you're sacrificing a lot of frack energy there. So those are the guys that are going to have the hardest decisions to make. But like I said, there's oil purchasers that just aren't picking up oil today, and that's only going to get worse. So whether you want to shut in your wells or not, you, you – you're going to get forced to. So I think the supply cuts aren't something that we all have to agree to. I think it's going to get done for us uh, through the free market. I'd probably agree with that, but it sounds like, like you mentioned, especially for frack companies, some people will be going through tough times pretty soon. Thankfully, it sounds like Warhorse made some pretty good decisions up at the beginning of this year, but what else will you be doing to navigate these waters? I mean, this is, 
pretty tumultuous situation to find yourself in as a business <laughs> owner of finance. Yeah, you got to be creative about how to generate free cash flow. And I'm not going to say I've got the magic answer. And if I did, I probably wouldn't share it. But, um, you know, right now it's a matter of analyzing things from a lifting cost perspective. You got to make complex problems really simple um, to get through them. And, you know, there are complex supply issues going on right now that are affecting the price we're getting. So all we can do is producers is look at your portfolio wells, rank them from lifting costs lowest, you know, to highest. And those are the wells you're going to try to operate. Um, and how can you even cut lifting costs even more? You know, that said, we still probably have to have prices go up till people are generating free cash flow. So now you need to look at your company as how do you, how do you survive? You know, how much cash do you have? What's your burn rate? What support staff do you need? What does it look like paying pumpers to go out once a month versus once a day, right? Um, and then how do you not lose those guys in the long term? So those are the balancing acts and questions you got to ask yourself from a current perspective and how do you just not burn cash flow? Um, if you happen to have a banker involved and you've got debt on the books, which unfortunately a lot of oil and gas companies, that's a different story. Um, but there is an old saying that, you know, if you borrow $200,000 on a $400,000 house, and stop making your payments, well, they're going to foreclose and, you know, take your house away from you. Well, if you borrow a million bucks on a $400,000 house, now your bank is your partner. So as much as there probably are going to be some foreclosures and some interesting issues and bankruptcies due to the overwhelming laden amount of debt in our industry, uh, bankers are not exactly racing to take over oil and gas assets when the price of oil is $4. So, there's going to be a lot of conversations um, working things out as much as possible. Understood. And so we've kind of covered the past and the present, but what will come of what will come of this in the future? I mean, what new industry standards will exist because we experienced the coronavirus and the day of 4 2020? Well, so I, I think what you've seen when OPEC went after us and you know, 2014, 15 area, you know, we had a huge drip drop in prices and the consensus on the street is the American shaleman won that round. And we're seeing some of that again right now. And, you know, the real question behind American shale is the capital, right? I mean, unfortunately, a lot of these PE backed firms didn't generate free cash flow, um, you know, with their initial plans. And um, we're struggling to generate free cash flow at 40 and $50 oil. The question will be, when you go pitch this to PE in two years, even if we have a price rebound, will they be stuck on a how do you survive $20 oil? And it turns out most of these horizontal plates can't survive $20 oil for a long time. So if that question stops PE companies from putting money behind oil and gas, you'll have a lot less investment in oil and gas, and naturally you'll have a lower U.S. production, and we'll get down under 10 million barrels of oil a day and never achieve that 16, 17, 18, or whatever people used to think the ceiling was for total U.S. production, because you just won't have the investment. So that's what's to be seen is what happens with PE back capital. You know, the PE companies that are currently in existence, they're going to answer two questions right now. Are the PE companies going to put in more money to help us limp along during crisis time and get to the other side of this rainbow and see what's there? Or 
have our capital dried up and we're going to have to liquidate assets. You know, and for the last two years, the next thing that's really interesting there is two to five years when a PE company went out and broke their pick on some idea, whether doesn't matter what basin it is, but you know, starting with Mississippi limestone, right, and then moving through the, some of the other plays that didn't quite work out well, those PE firms usually got rolled up into the next PE concept, the next model. They never hit the open market to actually be sold. And right now, the question will be, if we have failures in these PE-backed companies, are they going to hit the open market? Is it going to be for the bigger producers or independent producers to actually go buy them? Because if PE money dries up, well, that's going to be a next revolution to our, to our business, where it's going to go back to the mom and pops, probably some more conventional drilling, and drilling more wells that make sense. You mentioned um, the the price war in 15 um, with OPEC and, and you said that the shale producers kind of won that round. One thing that I'm wondering is part of that was a lot to do with duck inventory, drill gun completed type of stuff to a certain extent making that um, production not roll over. Do you see that changing a lot in this downturn um, with people not necessarily um, completing but still trying to work through their drilling contracts? Yes and no. I think the price will so low that people aren't going to work through the drilling contracts. I think more rigs will get laid down this time, and you're going to have rig counts drop a lot faster and a lot harder and to a lot lower level than you did. Because, you know, we were still at the worst, I think, in 14 or 15, you got to $28 for a day or two, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> it, it wasn't 10. <laughs> it certainly wasn't negative. And it certainly didn't have the global demand cut behind it. Right, you had a supply split, but you didn't have the demand cut behind it. In fact, we were growing pretty well as a global economy at that point. So, um, I guess all that said, you're certainly going to have the docks that aren't getting completed right now, just like we did last time. The issue is going to be, you know, I think companies are going to get desperate and they're going to frack them quicker, and this rebound is going to be slower. And those ducks is just pack them onto the tankers in the Gulf that are going to be sitting there with production, right? It's just extra storage. And you think of it as we're going to have every, you know, or most of the tanks around the country on these wells full. We got tankers in the Gulf full. We're going to have strategic petroleum reserve full. Cushing will be full and we got ducks. So, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if operators with good structure and good reservoirs aren't creating their own reserves and injecting, you know, if they can. So, I think it just prolongs um, prolongs it. I mean, our issue right now is on the demand side. And when until that picks up, this is going to be a prolonged reduced price environment. And only the people that can produce barrel oil at $10 or $15 or under are going to succeed and grow. And the plays that need $20, $30, $40, of oil are going to go away. And then... Of course, demands decrease, but how long do you think we're going to experience that decrease? Of course, we're kind of breaching out of petroleum here, maybe into medical and policy, political, but is the world taking right. the correct steps to handle this? And if not, what kind of would you like to see in the most ideal situation? Well, you know, are they taking correct steps? Hindsight being 2020, we'll look back and say certainly what they did was wrong. You know, are they efficient? I, I, I'm not sure. Time will tell. But if we just look at the facts of what's going on right now, I mean, 
let's just take one of the biggest drivers of oil consumption, you know, airplanes, right? Like about 10% of all oil consumption goes to jet fuel and flying people around. I mean, it took 18 months to recover after 9-11 to get flights booked at the capacity of pre-9-11. I was something that happened regionally and was a terrorist attack that was a one-day deal. Coronavirus, I would argue, is bigger than a one-day deal, right? So how long is it going to take? I mean, flights are booking now at 5% of what they were pre-coronavirus. We're top-line revenues off 95%. It's going to take a long time for that demand to come back. And, you know, we'll just have to wait and see if this thing keeps mutating. I was reading an article today that now maybe there's 30 different genetic versions of it, which may make a, a vaccine damn near impossible, kind of like the flu. We roll a new one out every year and it catches about half maybe. Um, and we're struggling with this. And, and this is the new normal to just be fighting coronavirus, whether it be seasonal or not. You know, people are going to fly less. People are going to drive less. People, you know, and then... Another big driver of global demand is just just bottom line consumption. How many people are buying stuff in a plastic wrapper, right? And you know, you got now 30 million people unemployed. It's going to take a little bit of time for that consumption and disposable income to come back to a level to drive worldwide demand. So, you know, this may be we may still have growth in demand like we did before, but you might have seen a step function. I go from 100 million to 85 million barrels a day and then grow from there like we used to. I think it's, it's going to be tough to get, it's going to take a long time to get back to where the world is actually using 100 million barrels of oil a day. And that's kind of foreboding for a lot of people, especially like myself and a lot of the audience members of this podcast who are hoping to be young professionals in energy industries such as Rolheim Engineering just energy markets, utilities in general. So what kind of advice would you have for those people? Should they fail now? Should they find something analogous or should they hold out hope? So let's go with some good news, right? There is good news, right? So most of the world lives at a living standard less than us. And to bring their quality of life up, they need electricity. And the electricity demand around the globe is going to increase as nations grow, populations grow, and they increase the quality of life for their citizens. So there's going to be a demand for energy. As oil and gas prices are down, and if they sustain a long low, it, it makes all of the other alternatives even more economically infeasible. And the demand for natural gas to create electricity is going to grow it's going to be there. And for that, to that extent, we're going to need to drill natural gas wells. And we're not going to replace oil anytime soon for making plastics or any of the other multitudes of things oil, oil is going to be used for. So this is going to be a redefining moment for our industry about who could do it cleaner, cheaper, and better than the other guy. But that said, the energy industry is huge. The energy demands worldwide for a generation will be huge. This is like the barber. You're always going to have a job, right? There will always be a need to cut somebody's hair. Whether the government is going to let you or not, well, that's a different story, right? But, um, you know, there will be demand. There will be growth in demand for hydrocarbons in the future. And um, the people that are really innovative will print themselves the next round of billionaires. So... You know, out of the Great Depression, we printed lots of billionaires. We're going to do that this time, too. Just be on that train. 
Definitely. And I think you're right. The fact that commodity prices are going to be so low only further reinforces the fact that natural gas will grow, especially in the form of energy generation. But then we've got, uh, I don't know if you saw AOC Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was having quite a fun time with the news from yesterday, saying that this is the time to grow. But I have to agree with you. This only probably hurts renewables, right? For making these resources that cheap. It, it doesn't help them. You know, I mean, the the reason you transfer over to renewables and have a solar and wind economy is because the price of oil goes to $150 a barrel. And it actually becomes economically feasible. And you get the side benefit of helping the climate, right? Because at the end of the day, the consumer wants to buy things as cheap as possible. It's one of the axioms of rational choice of well, fundamental laws of economics, you know? So AOC has an economics degree. So do I. Apparently, we went to different classes, but that's okay. Um, she understands it a little bit differently than I do. Um, but, you know, all that wrapped up in a nutshell, you're exactly right. I mean, as long as natural gas is cheap, it's the cheapest way to create electricity. And people would rather pay a $400 electric bill than an $800 electric bill. Scott, do you have any more questions? Um, I guess you mentioned that you took a two-year step back there um, at one point in your career. Um, as far as diversify and learn some new things, do you have any recommendations that, you know, what, what's the best bang for your buck type of thing? Like what's a good, if you, if you are forced into a hiatus, what, what's worth looking into to, to continue learning and, and developing as a younger person? Oh, man, um, that's a good question. Um, I did it more out of uh, just a sabbatical than really I, I, and in the sense that I fell out in love with the oil and gas market, I've been preaching for the last five years that I just don't understand how these PE companies are taking this cash and drilling these wells that, to me, never hits the tight curve of what they wanted to go do. How do we keep having earnings calls that look like free cash flows two to three quarters away? Don't you worry, honey. You just come along for the ride and everything's going to be fine, right? I mean, we participated as a company in probably 400 horizontal uh, wells in Wattenberg proper. I mean, I looked for five years to try to find a horizontal play that I thought actually had a shot at making some sense. I picked Wattenberg. I mean, the industry will tell you it's got some of the highest rate of returns onshore U.S. Um, and in over 400 wells, I'd look back and say, no, thanks. Certainly not as a non-op, maybe as an operator. Um, you know, certainly if you're in Anadarko and your checkerboard on the minerals or oxy or whatever they want to call themselves today, you own the minerals and the gathering systems through your current McGee acquisition years ago, you might be doing all right, right? So, um, you know, the question is what else would I look at if I was going to go do something else right now? Oh, I don't know. Health services industry sounds pretty good. I bet they're in high demand. I mean, I got a petroleum engineering degree for the same reason that I'm an entrepreneur now, how do you go make a buck? What's the hot industry, right? Where are people not getting fired? Where are they getting hired? Where's their demand? I would sit around and figure out, just like every other business or any business in the world, who's got a need and how can I fill it and make a dollar doing it, right? So where is their demand? And certainly in health services and that sort of thing, there's, there's, there's a demand. I bet you you could find a company that uh, or build yourself a nice little company, whether it be using new technology or whatever else, to go do it. Now, that said, you know, Gene Woolsey was one of the most wonderful professors I had at Colorado School of Mine. Um, and he taught operations research management. He had graduate students that would go work for a company 
for six months for free and then basically write them a consulting um, report of here's how to help your business. And then they tracked for the following fiscal year how much money or extra revenue they generated for those companies. And his 232 students did over a billion dollars worth of documented savings or revenue generation. Okay, you gotta be of that like mind to be able to go look at some, figure out how to do it better, and then implement those changes. The key to that model is doing it, going and working those six months on the line with those people. So if you wanna come in and start a company, do it in an industry that you know or have experience or go get yourself experience because the problems in that industry are by definition in that industry. And the guys that know how to solve them are already in that industry or know what they're struggling with. When you do it shoulder to shoulder with them for six months or a year, you come up with the creative ideas of how can I solve their problems. So sitting around in your living room, just trying to come up with the next widgets fun and can work for some, but um, my, my advice would be simply find an industry or sector that has demand, go do it for a year, six months, get a job around it, learn it, and then come up with your great idea of how to solve it. Good advice. Thanks. And then pivoting back to shale, I kind of know how you feel about it after you talk for a bit, but do you think there <laughs> is a future for North American shale? I mean, let's say no coronavirus. We'll just look at the cash flow, the debt that they've borrowed, and those curves you mentioned that really just plummet right after those first few months. Is there a future? You know, um, I, I'm going to say yes, there's going to be a future because at some point people are going to learn how to, you know, if they've got their own cash and they can drill these wells and the price can stay sustained enough above their lifting costs, they can generate free cash flow doing it. In those scenarios, there is a future. However, one of the scariest things I have about uh, I see in horizontal wells is, you know, we did a study in, you know, um, just kind of call it a very popular forma formation in the mid-continent with over 800 completions in it. And what we were seeing was, I mean, the typical hyperbolic declines, and that's fine, but, you know, when you go look at reserve reports of these wells, they're assuming 20, 30, 40-year lives on these wells and it makes a bit of difference whether that well you know levels out at 10 barrels a day 20 barrels a day 30 barrels a day right i mean the huge differences in total economic reserve the issue we saw in operational issues were as you got out from 36 to 50 months somewhere in there you actually started nosediving these wells off of that curve and the question is what's going on here why are we no longer on this nice hyperbolic curve we've been on for 48 months which should be enough to draw out where that well's going and it's you know how hard is it to keep a two mile wellbore clean at the toe and then i don't know if you've ever signed a job ticket to clean out a horizontal well that's two miles long but bring your big wallet that ain't a cheap opex to go through so um you know to answer your question, yes, we'll drill shale wells to the extent of where it makes sense to go do them. Um, as long as there's capital behind it, if the PE companies stop backing it, then it's going to be tough. And if there isn't, then it's going to be the companies with capital, and there's going to be the big, big independents um, that will be able to afford to go do it. All right, thank you. Well, yeah. I think that wraps up all the questions I had. Scott, you have anything else? Um, I guess just one more along that same line that you were saying with um, the reserves and, and kind of decline curves that people have, have 
gotten so used to making. Um, do you think that either at the corporate level or the SEC level or the bank level, that there's going to be a step change after this in reserves and, uh, and what you can book as value? Hmm. Yeah, my flippant answer is it sure doesn't seem that Wall Street really cares a whole lot about the truth of decline curves. <laughs> whether they're accurate or not, or just, you know, whether they're usable, they seem to, any usable answer, as long as it's got a PE stamp on it, by definition, then becomes usable. So, um, you know, I think what you're going to see is just like they talked about the PE companies asking themselves before they fund a corporation, you know, can we sustain a $20 oil year, you know, what does that do to the company? And, and is that a killer of doing this? I think, you know, you may see the banks doing some of the same thing. I mean, if we go back to when the banks really started energy lending back in the early eighties with Penn square bank, which for those of you who don't know, go read the book, funny money. It's a hilarious and be tragic of some of the first bank failures due to oil and gas lending. Right. Um, you brought in a mud log and needed a million dollars to complete your well, and you walked out with five million so you could drill two more. Um, little different standards that we have today, but those, you know, that pendulum has swung to typically you can go borrow 65% of PV10, um, you know, on your producing reserves. Does that get lowered to 50? I can tell you, I wouldn't want to borrow more than 40 or 50 just from a company perspective. So I think, you know, the companies that, get easy debt and then struggle through it. If they're able to survive or in the next go round, they're going to be a little bit more careful um, about how they structure their debt loads um, and how they can manage a downturn. So yes, I think to your answer, it is going to change. I don't know that you're going to see the SEC and how they report reserves for public companies necessarily change. Um, but I think certainly at the um, first lien debt level, senior banknote level, um, and probably in the mezzanine debt level, um, levels too, you're going to see a little bit more conservative approach, um, especially if, you know, if banks start taking the haircuts that I think banks are going to start taking the haircuts of on these assets over the next six months, you know, their energy department may still want to lend, but their overall board is going to say, uh -uh, we did a hundred million exposure, you know, we were at under the last peak, we're going to cap that at 50. So, Regardless, even if they still have the same metrics, there's going to be less money available. All right. That makes sense. All right. Well, John, thank you very much for coming on the show today to share your hope, wisdom, and speculation. We really appreciate it. But at this point, do you have anything you would like to say on behalf of Warhorse Petroleum? Are you open for business? And if people want to contact you, how can they? You know, uh, we are open for business. We are trying to acquire oil and gas production. We're also working on other creative ways, you know, from oil storage to buying equipment right now. Um, I think picking up work over rigs is going to make a heck of a lot of sense, especially if you can put them to use in six more months because um, they'll be cheap. Heck, I saw frack tanks going for 1300 bucks. So, uh, yes, we have cash. We are trying to figure out how to best deploy that to make money. Um, you know, I'll just throw out my email. My email's John, J-O-H-N, at warhorsepetroleum.com. Uh, drop me an email. I'm happy to share my contact. If um, you want to pick my brain or you got some operated leases for sale, I'm your guy. Well, thanks again, John. Yep. And until we see you next time, take care. Appreciate your time, guys. Thanks a lot.
Thanks.